And we'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. And of course we are here on Memorial Day. I'm sorry, I said 24. Joshua 14. Joshua chapter 14. Um, and so I want to read a little poem, I guess it is. It is a poem. I came across it the other day and I thought this was pretty good. It's, it's called These Honored Dead. And it says this. Why do you fly the flag today, my, my grandson wants to know? I fly it for the graveyards where the countless crosses grow. I fly the flag for children whose fathers are in name, a half-remembered memory of a face within a frame. I fly it for the families of sons and daughters lost. They know the price of liberty, how terrible the cost. I fly the flag for veterans who lost their youth in blood and saw their comrades slaughtered in the carnage in the mud. I fly it for the ones who marched in cadence off to war to close their eyes forever upon some foreign shore. I fly the flag for grief poured out upon a granite wall, the laying on of hands that, heal, that, that, help, that heals the scars within us all. I fly it for the sound of taps that melancholy tune that lays to rest those honored dead who always die too soon. Boy, that kind of sums it up. You know, it's, it's just, there really, are, there really are no words that we can use to, to really thank those who gave their lives. I mean, they literally paid the ultimate sacrifice. You know, I, I, I heard a story actually this morning. I, I read... Uh, a little piece about a guy who was uh, who, he was wrongly convicted and uh, of a crime, spent 37 years in prison, and then he was vindicated when um, a justice group I forget what the exact name of it is called but picked up his case. They they had fingerprints that were left at the scene of this crime. They didn't match his fingerprints. They found DNA. It didn't match his DNA, and so they let him go. 37 years. He was like 20 years old when he got convicted. So here he is coming out at 57, 60 years old. He got out. 37 years is a long time to go through something like that, but he got out. Those who went off to war at 18, 19, 20 years old, spent a month, two months, two years, and then died, never get out of that. That's it. That's the end of it. There is no justice for them. They gave the ultimate sacrifice. Here they are, most of them, in the prime of life. And they sacrificed that for us so that we could have our freedoms. That's a tremendous, tremendous thing. And not even those who gave their lives. I mean, that's, that's difficult enough. Those who came back were willing to do that. And they deserve just as much respect. They deserve just as much honor from us for what they did, what they were willing to do. War changes you. And I've never been to war, obviously, but I've read enough. I've talked to enough veterans. War changes you, uh, especially those guys that were in Vietnam and they came back. And, you know, you hear stories of these guys who wake up in the middle of the night and find their hands wrapped around their wife's neck because, they, you know, they were having a nightmare and thought they were back in the jungle. I mean, just the, the terror that the, that the wives go through because of what their husbands were willing to sacrifice. Most of those guys that were in Vietnam got... got um, exposed to all kinds of chemicals and everything else that 
they're, they're, they're still suffering from. You know, a lot of them have diseases and all kinds of stuff now because of that. And they're, they're still paying the price. This is Memorial Day. We remember them, and we ought, but we ought to be remembering them every day of the year. Because without them doing what they did, we would not have the freedoms that we have. You go all the way back to the American War for Independence. You know, declaring our freedom from Britain so that we could worship God the way that we wanted to, so that we could be free from the tyranny of a king. Then you move to uh, the War of 1812 and, the, and World War I, World War II, and, and Korea, and Vietnam, and all of these wars, you know, even to what we have now, you know, our current wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. There's a lot of soldiers that are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan that are just completely changed too, and they're still young men. I've, I, I can't tell you how many calls that I've run uh, with some of these police officers where we show, we show up and it's a veteran of the Iraqi war struggling with any number of different things because it changes you. It changes you. And I know we haven't lost near as many men in Iraq and Afghanistan than we lost in some of these other wars, but it changes you. And we ought to be thankful for their sacrifice. We ought to be thankful for what they've done in allowing us to have the freedom that we have. And I know, you know, them freeing the Iraqi people is not necessarily something that benefits us. Freeing the Afghanistani people is not something that benefits us. But it does because it keeps communism, it keeps socialism, it keeps these other things from spreading to this country. Keeping it from coming into this country means that we don't have to fight a war on our own soil. Could you imagine what that would be like? Could you imagine how difficult that would be if, if you know, here we are right on the coast. We'd be one of the first. I appreciate them going to Iraq and Afghanistan and keeping that stuff over there. You know, I don't want those people to have to go through it, but I'm glad they do what they do so that we can have what we have here. That's something that we ought to be thankful for, not just on Memorial Day, but every day of the year. In July, on July 3rd of 1863, is the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, and 15,000 Confederate soldiers faced 6,500 Union troops who were holding what's known as Cemetery Ridge. And they had the high ground. The Yankees had the high ground. 6,500 of them against 15,000 Confederates. And it became known later on as Pickett's Charge. But James Longstreet told Robert E. Lee, no 15,000 men could ever take that position. They charged anyway. General Hancock oversaw the Union defenses on Cemetery Ridge, and he suffered a wound that he fought through during that battle. But every southern soldier who did not flee was either captured or killed in that battle. Pickett's charge. Years after the war, Pickett was asked why the assault failed. It became known as one of the most colossal failures of the war. And he kind of made a little joke about it. He said, I've always thought the Yankees had something to do with it. And it's true, but they were up on the top of that ridge, 6,500 men against 15,000, and they held that line. Fast forward a few years to February 23 of 1945. Iwo Jima was needed to be a base for fighter aircraft to be able to land and refuel. It was a very strategic position. 22,000 Japanese soldiers were entrenched on the island in miles and miles and miles of underground tunnels. Inch by inch, the Marines, and they were the elite fighting force at that time. Everybody wanted to be a Marine. Uh, they advanced onto the island just under heavy fire from the Japanese, most that they could not even see. 
And Iwo Jima, I've never been there. I've seen pictures of it. It's nothing but a black island because of the volcanic ash. There's no soil there. It's just all black volcanic ash. Just a barren place that nobody would ever want to be, but it was very strategic. And so finally, on February 23rd, these Marines were able to summit the highest point, Mount Suribachi. And that was the most strategic position. And the first flag raising uh, was uneventful. The men went up there, they raised the flag, and they, they came back down. The flag was so small, and one of the commanders actually wanted that flag, and so he sent another group of men up there to replace that flag with a larger flag and bring him that flag back. And it was in that second group that uh, James Rosenthal, who, or Joe Rosenthal, who was a photographer, walked up that mountain with those Marines, and as they were planting that flag in the ground, six Marines got their picture taken that became immortalized. And you go to Washington, D.C., and there's a huge statue of those six Marines there planting that flag in the ground. They didn't think anything of it. Joe Rosenthal didn't even think anything of it. This was just the second planting of the flag. This was just replacing a flag that was already there. They, back in those days, they didn't have digital cameras. They used film. And they didn't even get to see their film until after they were done with the war and went back. They would send their rolls of film back and they would, you know, the war committees would go through those things and pick out the photos that they wanted to keep, the ones that were good, and throw out the ones that weren't. And before Joe Rosenthal even knew that his picture was famous, it was all over the country on the front pages of newspapers. It became a stamp. They used it to, to raise money for the war bonds and everything else. But do you know that by the end of the war, three of those men that planted the flag on Iwo Jima were dead? And of those who lived, their lives were so destroyed by the things that they had seen in war that one of them, who was an Indian, uh, an American Indian, had his life just absolutely destroyed by alcohol because he turned to drinking because he couldn't, he couldn't cope with the things that he saw in war. Joshua chapter 14, we see another story like that. In verse number 6, Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto, the, unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee and Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. And I brought him word again as, if it, was in my, as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Caleb was one of the twelve spies that went into the land. Of course, you know the little song, ten were bad and two were good. Ten came back and said, there's no way that we can take this land. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, this land is ours. God's promised us that we can have it and we can conquer the land. Well, those ten spies and everyone else that was 20 years old and up died during the 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that were spared because of their faith, because of their belief. And Caleb reminds Joshua, you remember what Moses said when I came back with the word that day, verse number 9, Moses swear on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake his word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. Here he is, eighty-five years old. He made it through the wilderness. He traveled those 40 years, 
They've come into the promised land, and here they are five years after they've made it into that land, and, and Caleb is coming back to claim the land that God had said that he could have. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. I'm starting to think maybe Mr. Forbes wrote this, but I'm not sure. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now therefore, give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite unto this day because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron before was Kerjeth Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims and the land had rest from war. See, Caleb wanted the top of the mountain. He was willing to do whatever he had to do to take that high ground. The same thing happened in Iwo Jima. The same thing happened with the uh, Pickett's Charge in the Battle of Gettysburg. It's easy to keep the low ground because nobody's fighting over the low ground. Nobody's, you know, the low ground is where most people are content to live, but there are some who choose to take that higher ground. And a lot of you spiritually speaking, have chosen that path. The high ground represents heartache. It represents battle. It represents struggle. It's not easy to hold, but when you take it, when you take it, the victory is so much sweeter. And this morning, this morning's message is not going to be an easy message. Holding the high ground is never easy. But I want to give you a couple things this morning, a few areas where we can be encouraged to hold the high ground. Let's pray and we'll look at these things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to be Christians. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be Americans. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be Christians in America. Pray that you'd help us not to take that for granted. And that, God, we'd hold the high ground in our lives when it comes to spiritual things. We wouldn't be willing to settle for the low ground when you've promised us the mountain. And God, I pray that you'd help us as we look at a few things this morning, that you'd bless the message, and we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing, the first place that we can hold the high ground is in convictions. There's a lot of different convictions that we could talk about, but the first thing is the Word of God. We need to hold the high ground when it comes to the Word of God. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. See the conviction that the King James Bible is the Word of God, and we will not lower ourselves to the words of men. We're not going to compromise because some men told us, some man told us, that his version is better. By the way, if the newest version was the correct version, does that mean that from 1611 to 2020, we did not have the word of God in our hands? God said that he was going to preserve his word forever. It says that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. You know what a jot and a tittle was? Those were the smallest parts of the Hebrew letters. It would kind of be like a little cross on an F or the little dot on an I. That's what he's talking about. He said, till heaven and earth shall pass away, not even one of those little parts of a letter of a word is going to pass away. So if God has promised that he's going to preserve his word, then he can do it. And he has done it. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. 
We have a lot of these verses that you've been memorizing over the last couple weeks. That's the first section in there, and that's such an important thing, that we have a word of God that is the truth and that we can stand on, and that's something that we ought to hold the high ground in. We ought not to be willing to drop our convictions when it comes to the word of God. Another place that we ought to hold the high ground in our convictions is in music. We're not going to follow the contemporary music crowd into compromise. Music is a reflection of the love that you have for God. And when the right kind of music will strengthen your walk with him, the wrong kind of music is going to destroy it. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. You know, churches are lowering their standards in the area of music all the time to try to draw in a younger crowd. They've been, a, they've, they've been trained to not appreciate the old-fashioned hymns because they're being taught that everything needs to be new and improved. And I'm not against new and improved. I'm not against technology. I'm not against using the advantages that we have. But there are some things that we're going to say, I'm taking the high ground and we're not going to come down. And music is one of those things. You realize, and I'm not going to get into it all this morning, but, but the, the origin of rock and roll, by their own admission, the fathers of rock and roll have said that it's, it, it is sensually charged why they wrote those songs the way that they did. And that rock music has the, all of those undertones that are designed for sensuality. And we're going to take that music and translate it into the church. And just because we put Jesus in there every once in a while, we're going to say that that's fine. It's not fine. And it's something that we ought to take a stand against. We ought to be willing to stand up and say, we're not going to lower our standards. We're not going to lower our convictions when it comes to music that ought to be pleasing God. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You can't tell me that these people who get up there and gyrate on the stage in clothes that are so tight, they reveal everything and, and, and have this, this, this beat in the background and all of these things are things that are pleasing to God. You can't tell me that those things are pleasing to God. They're not pleasing to God, and it's something that we ought to be willing to take a stand against. There are certainly... Uh, you know, these, these churches are certainly adding more people, but then they stop preaching against the, the things that matter in order to keep those people in the church. And they drop their convictions in everything, and that's why when music in a church starts to slip, it's not long before everything in that church starts to slip right behind it. Music is usually one of the first things to go in a church when they start to turn toward compromise. And that's why we ought to stand up and preach our convictions in music. Now, here's another one. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We ought to keep our convictions when it comes to dress. And this is a hard one to hold the high ground in. See, the way that the world is today, it, it makes it very easy to just fit in with what the world is doing. A lot of churches have stopped preaching it because it's not popular and because people leave. I, I spoke with a pastor when we were on deputation trying to raise some support to start this church. And, and we got to talking in a conversation. I don't know him. I haven't talked to him since then, but, but we had this conversation. He said, I used to preach modesty, but I stopped because it's not worth it. Too many people didn't like it, and I was tired of losing people in my church. But I tell you what, it is worth it. If it's worth fighting for the King James Bible, if it's worth fighting for godly music, then why wouldn't it be worth fighting for godly standards of dress? Every one of them is in the Bible, so how can we pretend that one of them is more important than the other? And it's not fair for me to tell you that you need to dress modestly. I'm going to teach from the Bible what the Bible says about how and why we do those things. But look what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
And, and we're going through these, by the way, on Sunday nights, what we, what we believe, why we believe those things. And within, within a few months, we're going to talk about that. Why do we believe in modesty and in standards of dress? But 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, in, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. It's not an easy thing to do, and I feel bad for the ladies because they're the ones that really take the brunt of this. Guys blend in easily, right? I'm not going to go walk around in a dress, uh, it's, 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 but it's, it's, it's a whole lot harder for the ladies to be modest and to stand up in a culture where modesty is not a thing and where modesty is not, maybe I should say, an acceptable thing anymore. It's so much easier on men, but imagine getting to heaven and being able to say, God, I did my best for you. I knew what was right, and I did it. But I tell you that today, so many people live their lives on the border. They want to please God, and they want to please the world, and that doesn't work. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you need to be weird or frumpy or any of those kind of things, but it does mean that you need to be modest, and it's something that we ought to be willing to stand up for when it comes to our convictions. Here's another one. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 18. When it comes to homosexuality, and I'm not just picking on homosexuality. That's what everybody, oh, you know, there's a lot of other sins out there that people do. And there are. Look, the Bible calls lying an abomination. He calls homosexuality an abomination. He calls a lot of different things an abomination. And we'll preach against those things. But we know that homosexuality is wrong. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It's an abomination. Couple chapters over in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon him. You move into the New Testament, and the Bible very clearly says that these things are going to be an evidence that we are in the last days. And we're seeing it everywhere. And it used to be preached against, it used to be frowned upon, even by society. And it's, getting, it's going to get harder and harder to stand against it. But just because society is saying that it's normal, just because society, society is saying that we ought to accept it, doesn't mean we need to accept these things. We ought to have convictions against them, and we ought to be willing to hold the high ground when it comes to holding to our convictions. The Bible's not asking, to give us, asking us to give up everything fun in this life. Sometimes it might seem that way to us. But there are some things that as Christians we cannot do if we want to please God. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify him to, unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We often point out the peculiar people part of that verse, and it is. We are peculiar people. We ought to be different from the rest of the world. But do you realize what it says at the front of that verse? Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity? Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from the very things that we so often try to run back to. He doesn't want us to live lives full of sin. He doesn't want us to live lives the same way that the world lives their lives. He wants us to be different, and he gave his life to free us from those things so that we could be different. He gave his all for us. Can we not in turn give our all to him? Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children 
and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, our love for God ought to be so strong that it seems like even though we do love our families and everybody in it, that it seems like it's a hate compared to the love that we have for God. That's what he's talking about. I mean, it's not saying, oh, you need to go hate your wife. You need to go hate your kids. He's not saying that. But he's saying that our love for him ought to be so strong and so great that it, in comparison, our love for everything else almost seems like hate. It should be easy for ladies to dress modestly. It should be easy for men to hold high standards in our home when it comes to music, when it comes to television. It should be easy for kids to give up the wrong friends that they know are not pleasing to God. If we are concerned about living a life that's pleasing to God, then those things shouldn't be a chore. They shouldn't be difficult. They should be an easy thing to do because we just want to please God. We ought to hold the high grounds, the high ground in convictions. But secondly, we ought to hold the high ground in compassion. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. You realize that compassion makes us more like Christ. There's a lot of people today, especially in Christian circles, that hate the homosexuals. They hate liberal politicians. They hate, you name it. And they're not afraid to say that they hate those people. But the Bible says in Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 36, but when he saw the multitudes talking about Jesus, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. A few chapters later in Matthew chapter 14 and verse number 14, the Bible says, and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. See, the easiest thing to do as we look around this world today is to see all the sin and the vile things that are going on and wish that they could all just die and go to hell. Well, they deserve it. Look what they're doing to this country. Well, they deserve it. Look what they're doing. Well, look what he did. Look at that. They just deserve to die and go to hell. There's one pastor. He's, he's popular on the Internet, and he's, he said that plainly when Barack Obama was the president of the United States. He said, I pray every single night that Barack Obama would die and go to hell. And in that same message, he said, I pray every night that the homosexuals would die and go to hell. What kind of preaching is that? That's not preaching that Jesus Christ endorses. Jesus Christ saw the multitudes. And you can't tell me that there wasn't people in that multitude that were wicked, horrible sinners. But Jesus Christ saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion on them because they were as sheep having no shepherd. John Bradford, he was an English reformer in the mid-1500s. He was burned at the stake. He died as a martyr. And as he watched a group of prisoners being led to execution, he said, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 9, for I am the least of the apostles, Paul said, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. They are all souls on their way to hell, and they just need somebody to show them who to follow. They're just following their father. John chapter 8 and verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. If God is not your father, then you're going to follow the devil. You're going to do what he tells you to do. That's all they're doing. They're just following their father. And I'm not excusing their sin. I'm not saying that what they're doing is okay. But they need someone to care enough to just give them the truth. It's not our job to judge them. We're commanded to share the gospel with them. It's not easy to stomach what the homosexuals are doing and, and the way that they're pushing all of these things. But our hearts should break for them. Their souls dying without Christ. And but for the grace of God, there go I. 
It's not easy to watch the politicians gut this country and change everything that it was founded upon, but your heart should break for them. They're sheep having no shepherd, and but for the grace of God, there go I. It's not easy to forgive the criminals that are making this nation unsafe to go anywhere, but your heart should break for them. They're souls that are dying without Jesus Christ, and but for the grace of God, there goes Steve Boots. But for the grace of God, our hearts should break with compassion for those that are as sheep having no shepherd. That's what Jesus Christ did. And oh, it's so easy for us to say, well, look at me, I've got convictions, I've got standards, I'm so much better than all of those people. No, it's just that I've been able to have the privilege of being in church. I've been able to have the privilege of knowing that I can accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've had the privilege of knowing that He could change my life, and He has changed my life. Doesn't make me better than they are. It just makes me saved. I'm just, a, I'm just a beggar trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. That's what we are. And so we can look at the homosexual crowd. We can look at the liberal crowd. We can look at all of those things and we can lift up our nose and say, look how much better I am than them. We can look at some of these other liberal churches that are playing this contemporary Christian music and that are leading this crowd in the wrong direction. And we can say, look how much better than we are than them. No. We've just been given the truth and we chose to follow it. And but for the grace of God, that's me. But for the grace of God. And so we ought to have compassion on those who are as sheep having no shepherd. And we ought to be willing to take the high ground when it comes to those things and say, I'm not going to come down. I'm not going to give up on compassion. I'm not going to give up on those people. They're as sheep having no shepherd. And I want to be like Christ and I'm going to have compassion on those people. Hold the high grounds when it comes to conviction. Hold the high ground when it comes to compassion. And lastly, better hold the high ground in continuance. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So many people are giving up the high ground because it's not easy to hold. It's a whole lot easier to give in and not have any standards. It's a whole lot easier to fit in when you don't hold standards in whatever it is, dress, music, the Bible. A whole lot easier. There's, there's, there's plenty of people. I could give you examples. I'm not, I'm not trying to call people out by name, but I could give you examples right now of people who used to stand for the King James Version of the Bible, who used to have standards when it came to dress, who used to have standards when it came to music, and they've let those go. Why is that? Because it's easier. It's a whole lot easier to fit in. It's a whole lot easier to just blend in than it is to stand up and make yourself a target. Because that's what happens when you take a stand. Look, everybody sees the person up on the hill. They want to take them down. They don't want them to be there. They want them to be down on their level because that person that's up there on that hill is making them look bad. You see, the Muslims aren't going to change their beliefs or standards for anyone. They're not going to change. Why? They, they don't even have the truth. And yet they're not going to change because they have standards and convictions. And they're going to stand on those standards and convictions and those beliefs. We can criticize them all, the, all that we want. They're certainly wrong about what they believe, but they've taken ground that they're not going to give up. And I'm not saying that, you know, that we ought to you know, mimic the Muslims, but they're certainly doing what they say they're going to do. And they certainly believe what they say they're going to believe. Look, after 9-11 especially... You see somebody walking around in the streets with a turban on their heads? It's almost like they got a target on their back. 
You know, you see some of these ladies walking around where all you can see is, is this part of their eyes. You can't tell me that they don't think everybody's looking at me and they think I'm a terrorist and I got a bomb under my skirt, right? That's exactly what everybody thought for a while after that happened in, not, you know, in, in, in September of, 20, of 2001, right? And yet, they had those standards and they had those convictions and they had their beliefs and they were not going to give those things up. And I hate to say this, but the Muslims are the number one growing religion in almost every country in this world. How can that be? That in 2011, they had this horrible name, horrible reputation across the world. And in just a matter of less than 20 years, they're the number one religion spreading across this country. You know why? Because they had ground that they were not willing to give up. And it's a shame that we're talking about the Muslims like that, and we can't say that about Christians. But that's exactly what we should be able to say. We have ground that we're not willing to give up. I'm going to continue doing what God wants me to do. How much easier should it be for us who claim to love God to take the high ground and do everything we can to hold it? We had to determine that we're going to continue to stand for Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 14 says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. These things come directly from the Word of God. And if a standard or a conviction or a belief doesn't come from the Word of God, then we ought to get rid of it. We ought not stand on a man's opinion. We ought not to stand on something that we just heard in passing. We ought to stand on it because it came from the Word of God. And if it doesn't, we ought to get rid of it. But if it does come from the Word of God, then we ought to be willing to stand. We ought to be willing to take that ground and keep it. Why is it important that we hold the high ground? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. He's trying to pull us down. We talked about that when it came to soul winning. He's trying to do everything he can to keep us from spreading the message of the gospel. He's trying to do everything he can to get an advantage of us. When you're on the high ground, you can see the enemy coming. It doesn't make you better than the others, but it gives you an advantage. And in this day, we need every advantage that we can get. When I was growing up, I loved playing king of the mountain because I was so much bigger than my brothers. I guess some things never change, but... King of the mountain's a lot like this life. When you're the king on the top of that mountain, everybody wants to take you down. Right? They want that spot. They don't want you to be there. Even if they don't want the spot, they just don't want you to be there. And they're going to do everything they can to take you down. They're going to do everything they can to knock you off the top. We'll do whatever they can to bring you down to their level. Fight to keep it. It's worth it. I'm going to tell you two stories, and then we'll be done. Well, many years ago now, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago. He uh, wasn't famous for anything heroic. He was notorious for basically just enmeshing the Windy City in everything criminal. And he had a whole network, obviously, as the crime boss, the mob boss, he had a whole network of bootleg booze and prostitution and murder and everything else. But Capone had a lawyer nicknamed Easy Eddie. And he was actually very, very good. He was, he was, he was Al Capone's lawyer for a, for a reason, for a good reason. In fact, his, his skill at maneuvering kept Big Al, as they called him, Al Capone, out of jail for a long time. The only way that Al Capone actually eventually got captured was because of something that Easy Eddie did. 
Izzietti was just as involved in all the crime that Al Capone was involved in. And he was in just as deep as Al Capone was in. But there was a soft spot that Easy Eddie had, and that was for his family. And he had a young boy that he cared about. And he had, he had a young boy that he loved enough that he didn't want to see him go the same way that he went. And so he did everything he could to teach him to stay away from the things that he and Al Capone and all these other guys were deeply involved in. And it came to the point where Eddie was so convicted, if you want to call it that, about his need to raise his boy the right way and to keep him out of a life of crime. That Easy Eddie was actually the one that went to the authorities and squealed on Al Capone. And Al Capone was eventually arrested and, and he was, you know, convicted. There were two things that Easy Eddie couldn't pass on to his son. That was a good reputation and a good name. But he was willing to do whatever he could to try to make those things right. In his eyes, he had given his son the greatest gift that he had to offer and at the greatest price that he would ever pay because it was only a couple weeks after he turned in Al Capone that he was killed in a hail of gunfire in a, in a street, back alley in Chicago. World War II came along, produced a lot of heroes. One of those men was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot that was assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. And one day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. And after he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge, and he realized that somebody had forgotten to top off his tank and realized that he did not have enough fuel to go on this mission with the rest of, those, uh, with the rest of that squadron. So he radioed in, and his commander told him to return back to the Lexington because he wasn't going to make it. There was no point in him just being shot down and not even being able to carry out this mission. As he turned around to go back, he had only flown for a few minutes when he saw a Japanese squadron of airplanes following his squadron. Now, his squadron of men were, were going on a bombing mission. They were not equipped to be able to take on all of these Japanese zeros that were closing in. And so uh, Lieutenant Commander O'Hare decided that he was going to do something about that. And so he, he basically laid aside all of the thoughts of his own personal safety and he just started dodging in and out of those Japanese aircraft and firing his weapon, and eventually he was completely out of bullets. But instead of making it for home, he started doing everything he could to try to clip the wings off of those airplanes and to try to, to, try to do everything he could to, to keep them from getting to his squadron. And eventually what happened is that Japanese squadron of airplanes turned and went in a different direction. And Butch O'Hare made it back to his base, told his commander what had happened. They had video that was recorded on, on their airplanes, and so they watched the video and saw that everything they had said about this encounter was actually true. Turned out that he actually shot down five of those Japanese planes and became the first ace of World War II. It was only a month later, though, that Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare was killed in the line of duty. And... February 20th of 1942, at 29 years old. Now, his hometown was not going to allow the memory of this World War II hero to go unnoticed. And so they actually named Chicago's O'Hare Airport after Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. And if you go to O'Hare Airport today, they actually have a, a, a big memorial displaying his statue. 
He was given a medal of honor posthumously because of everything that he had done. It's located between Terminals 1 and 2 in Chicago's O'Hare Airport. What do those two stories have to do with each other? Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare was the son of Easy Eddie. If I can give you a great motivation for holding the high ground, it's this. We have a generation that's coming behind us that needs to know the truths from the Word of God. Not just because we tell them this is the way that it used to be. This is what they used to do in church. This is how they used to stand for Christ. But because we show them by the way that we live that we're not willing to give up the high ground. Ronald Reagan said, freedom is only one generation away from extinction. And that's true. But I think we can take that a step farther and say that Christianity is also only one generation away from extinction. You think about the fact that if every person that's a Christian today does not stand for the truth of the Word of God, does not share the message of the Gospel with their children, and their children grow up not knowing Jesus Christ, Christianity is gone. It's gone in one generation. And that's why it's so important that not only do we stand up for the gospel, but we stand up for our convictions. We stand up for what we believe in. We stand up with compassion for those that are dying without Jesus Christ. We stand up and say, you know what? It's not easy. But I'm going to continue. I'm going to live my life for Jesus Christ the best way that I know how. I don't care who tries to come against me. I don't care what weapons they use to try to take me down. Not for pride's sake, but I'm going to stand for Jesus Christ. And like so many stories that we could tell of soldiers who just stood and took the high ground, were willing to stand for the cause of Jesus Christ. One day we're going to stand before God. He's going to ask us, what you do with all the advantages I gave you? What's your answer going to be? You have from now until he comes to do everything you can to hold the high ground. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. God, we have a tremendous responsibility when it comes to these things. Not only to pass the message of the gospel on to the next generation, but to stand for the truths that we have in the Word of God and to do everything that we can to hold that high ground. So many people are dropping the banner. So many people are dropping the flag because it's a whole lot easier just blending in and not being a target. But God, you've called us to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. That's what you've called us to do. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to make decisions this morning that will help us to live for you, help us determine to stand for the cause of Christ. The only thing I want in life is to be known for loving Christ. I pray that each one of us can say that this morning. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed.